Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Well, hey, good morning, New Life Fellowship. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Eric Noah. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I have the privilege of bringing you God's Word today. Um, you know, just a few announcements before we jump into today's text. Uh, one is uh, thank you so much for those who joined us in our chat room last week and made that shift from being a stoic, uh, quiet church to one that's much more boisterous, loud, and uh, more southern gospel, if you would. Um, and so please continue that this week. We truly did enjoy that. Uh, please interact with this sermon. If there's something you like or if there's something that blesses you, go ahead and click on that heart. Say amen, preach or preach, whatever you want. Um, but we truly did enjoy that last week, so let's continue that. Uh, Secondly, if you are new to our church, we want to welcome you, and we want to invite you to this kind of newcomers meeting that we're going to be having on Zoom today at 1.30 p.m. Uh, One of the pastors will put that RSVP in the chat room, and so please do sign up for that. I would love to meet you personally, um, and I personally want to invite you to that. Um, If you have any questions, I can answer them for you. If you want to get to know me, uh, I would surely love to get to know you, so please do consider joining us for that today at 1.30 p.m. Uh, Well, let's dive into our sermon for today. We've been going through a sermon series called Pandemic Playlist, and we've been going through different psalms, which are actually songs in the Bible, and studying them to see what they might have to say to us during the season to really encourage our hearts. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 16. And so if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn there with me? Uh, If not, it'll be on the screens there for you. We're going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So if you have that version on, on the, of your Bible uh, on your phone or tablets, please turn there with me. I'll go ahead and read this for us. Uh, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God. Uh, afterwards, I'll pray for us and then I'll seat you once that prayer is done. Let's go ahead and read Psalm chapter 16. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. God, we're so thankful that King David wrote this amazing psalm for us so that we can study it, meditate on it, chew on it, Lord, so that we might be encouraged, Lord, so that we might feel the security of your love, your peace, and your grace. Holy Spirit, we ask that you go into each and every home and into each and every person's heart, and God, would you encourage us, lift us up, Lord, so that we might know you more. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, You can go ahead and be seated right there at home.
Well, um, you know, I want to start off today's sermon with a statement, with a statement, and it's this. Americans are absolutely obsessed with security. Americans are obsessed with security. Uh, in the U.S., we actually allocate $1.2 trillion of federal spending towards defense and intelligence agencies uh, in order to provide security in our nation. Uh, Americans alone, uh, individually, spend roughly about $2.64 billion on personal home security. And that's a statistic from 2011. Uh, in 2014, um, uh, there were 3 million homes that were uh, using some sort of home security, uh, but in uh, 2017, there was an article written that was basically projecting that we'd have over 22 million people by 2020 who would have personal home securities. And this was uh, written in the New York Times uh, by uh, an individual named Rhonda Kaysen. And that's just home security. Uh, we haven't even included numbers on guns, which is, of course, a type of uh, personal home security. It is, it is recreational as well, but it's also a type of security that people use. We haven't included home, auto, or life insurance, which is, again, another type of security. We haven't included car security. We haven't included financial security. We haven't included tech security, or even the amount that's spent in considering buying homes in a more secure, safe location. In fact, one of the biggest conversations we were having as a nation before this COVID-19 thing all broke out was border security. All this to say, right, Americans are absolutely obsessed with security. We have a deep desire to be safe, to be safe, to feel safe, to be secure. And yet, although we pour so much money, effort, time into security, there are times when this notion of security is challenged. It's really, really challenged. Uh, you know, earlier this year, uh, my wife's aunt's husband, so an uncle by marriage, he passed away all of a sudden in his sleep. He was in his upper 40s. He was fairly young. He was healthy. He was an avid practitioner of jujitsu, uh, muscular, not, not fat or out of shape. Uh, he ate very, very healthy uh, and yet suddenly died in the middle of his sleep in the middle of the night. Uh, they were making plans to go on vacations the night before. And yet all of a sudden, without warning, he just passed away. And after incidents such as this, of course, there are a host of emotions. There's sadness, depression, grieving, all this sorts of stuff. Um, but, but another feeling or, and even a thought that appears in our minds after an incident like this is this phrase that life is so fragile. And yet, in my opinion, this phrase, life is so fragile, is actually a euphemism or a polite way of saying, ah, we're not as safe as we think we are. It challenges our notion of security. And I'm sure many of you have had this type of experience that I had myself. And if not, we all had this, uh, this feeling together earlier this year when Kobe Bryant suddenly and, uh, passed away from a helicopter crash. Uh, although we were grieved and saddened by this, our notion of security was challenged when the most powerful, when the most well-known, when one of the most wealthiest men on this planet died suddenly of a helicopter crash. And these sudden and yet horrific events make us question, where is our true source of security? Where does it lie? Uh, after these horrific, horrific events, I remember after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, we began challenging our notion of security. After Columbine, which is one of the first major school shootings, and then after every subsequent school shooting after that, every single time we questioned our notion of security. After 9-11, after the World Trade Centers were hit, we questioned this notion of security. Are we truly safe? And now during this pandemic, we are asking this question once again. Are we truly safe? And I think 
that during this time, when our security is being challenged, it's actually good for us. It's healthy for us to ask once again, where is your security? How do you find real security? And to realign ourselves onto how to find true security during this season and in the seasons to come. And so with that said, we have three points as we normally do. The first point is a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Uh, the second point is a false sense of danger. A false sense of danger. And then the third and final point is true security. So a uh, false sense of security, a false sense of danger, and then true security. So let's dive into our first point. I want you to take a look at verse 9 here. He says this, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And I believe this is the perfect summary for this entire psalm. The psalmist is essentially asking this question, where do you find your security? Uh, and he's actually telling us how he finds security, how he finds that his flesh is secure. Um, and now here's the thing. We know this psalm was written by King David, but we actually don't know when it was written. But scholars have suggested this, that this, this, this psalm was most likely written at the beginning of King David's life, at the beginning of it. And the reason why is because this psalm seems to be written at a time of peace. Uh, it seems to be written after a time of threat, but also during a time of peace. Uh, you know, as you know, King Saul was threatening King David's life. But when King David David finally defeated King Saul when he actually took the throne. There was a massive amount of peace that King David had experienced. What King David uh, didn't know was that in the future there would be tons of threats to his life. His kingship would be filled with chaos, war. In fact, his own son would end up threatening his own life and his own kingship uh, uh, towards the later parts of his life. And in my opinion, we are kind of in the same place as King David. At the outset of this pandemic, our lives were threatened. Many of us were filled with fear. Uh, we didn't know much about the virus. We didn't know much much about um, the mortality rates or, um, or how infectious disease, this disease was. And many of us uh, started to really have fear and panic over our lives. Uh, and yet, over time, uh, we've come to realize that this virus is not as bad as we initially thought it to be. I'm not saying that it isn't dangerous. It is definitely a dangerous virus. Um, and it's definitely much more dangerous than the seasonal flu. Uh, but it's not as dangerous as we first perceived it to be. In addition, many people in our church have not been affected by the virus, nor have they lost their jobs over uh, uh, this sort of economic situation that we find ourselves in. In other words, most of us are doing okay. And so all this to say, many of us are actually in a season of peace. And we're just sort of waiting for all of this to be over. And, and so similarly to King David, I actually think we find ourselves, although in the midst of a pandemic, also in the midst of peace. And I think it's good for us in this time where we've just experienced life-threatening situation to examine where do we find our security. During this time of peace, I think it's good for us because in the future, we will face more threats. We will face things that will threaten our existence, our life, our livelihoods. We will face things that, that will threaten our money, our power, our security, our job, all of these things. And so it's good that we ask this now. Okay, so uh, we're going to be studying two false ways of approaching this concept of security. And the first way of approaching this, uh, this falsely is actually to have a false sense of security. It's actually to approach this with a false sense of security. Okay, look with me at verse 4. Okay, King David says this, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out 
or take their names on my lips. Um, what David here is referring to is he's referring to this practice of running to idols in order to, to secure yourself. Most times when people were afraid, they would run towards idolatry to actually make them feel safe. And I oftentimes wondered as a Christian, like, why do these Israelites keep going to idols? Um, don't they know that these idols are fake? Don't they know that these idols are carved from man-made hands? Like, don't they, don't they know that these idols are not real? And yet, even though these idols were not real, these idols brought them significant feelings of security. And here's the reason why. There's actually three reasons. The first thing is that idols are controllable. They're controllable. God or Yahweh was not controllable. If you remember in Exodus, Moses asks God, hey, tell me who you are. Tell me how do I present you to Pharaoh? And God says, tell him I am who I say I am. I am who I am. In other words, what God was saying is this, you can't control me. You can't put me in a box. You can't fit me in with all these other idols. Uh, and yet with these idols, they were immensely controllable. They were essentially a math equation. If you sacrifice this many goats and at this time and you do it for this many weeks, the idol will bless you. He'll give you everything you want. And so this control gave them this sense of security. And although you think, man, that's so ridiculous, that's so stupid, we do this today too. We have our superstitions, do we not? When you go, baseball players have their superstitions. Golf players have their superstitions. Uh, if you go to Las Vegas before uh, in a craps table, people have their superstitions. They shake the dice so many times. They have somebody blow on the dice, these sorts of things, because why? It makes them feel more secure. In addition, idols were knowable and visible. God or Yahweh told his people not to make a graven image of himself. And the reason why God says, don't make a graven image of me, is because he's saying this, look, I'm not controllable. You can't put me in a box. You can't tell me who I am. I am who I am again. And, and, and yet the idols were knowable, they're visible, they could be understood. And yet God is saying, I'm so big, I'm so amazing, I'm so awesome, I'm so powerful, I'm so um, just amazing that you will never truly understand the depths of who I am. Yes, I will reveal certain things to you, but you will never know the mysteries of who I am. And yet with these idols, you can know them. You can see their faces, they're carved in images. They were understandable. You could actually understand these idols and thus it gave them much more control and security in their lives. Uh, lastly, idolatry provided a network of relationships. Uh, military alliances would be built up through idolatry. It was through um, idols that relationships and military alliances could be forged. So for example, if you worship the same gods as the Egyptians, well, you could potentially create a military alliance so that in the future, if somebody attacks you, you would call up the Egyptians and say, hey, Egypt, look, people are attacking me. They're attacking your gods. Let's show them who's the boss. Come and help me. Come and send military forces and might. And so this provided security. And what most Christians don't understand about idolatry in ancient Israel is this. It's not like the Israelites would give up worship to God. It's not like they would give up worship to Yahweh. They would actually worship Yahweh, but they would hedge their bets by actually worshiping the idols as well. They, they, would, they would do both. They would say, look, I'm completely devoted to Yahweh. I'll sacrifice, I'll tithe, I'll do the right things as an Israelite, but I'll also hedge my bets and I'll make sure that I have these reinforcements in the back um, by worshiping these idols. And yet God says, don't mix those up. Don't mix up idol worship with me. I want pure and utter devotion to me. And King David understood this truth, that these idols don't offer real security. They're just wooden statues. They're not real. They don't provide anything. And yet what these Israelites did thousands of years ago, we still to 
do today. Instead of turning to Jesus, instead of turning our pure and utter devotion to Jesus, we turn to our idols. We turn to our power, our money, our know-how. We turn to our comforts. We turn towards anything that might bring us a sense of security, but don't actually provide real security. And now here's the thing. Did you understand? Do you understand that you can actually feel secure and not be secure at all? Overbought. Do you know that you could feel secure and not be secure at all? Let me give you an example. First car I ever bought uh, with my own money was a Nissan Versa. This was back in 2007. I did all this research on the Nissan Versa and I came to find out that it was one of the safest cars in its class. So I bought the car, I started driving it around and I drove that thing so many miles. I think I drove it over 150,000 miles. Um, I used it for over nine years. I drove it from 2007 all the way to 2016. And I remember when I got married to my wife, my wife kept telling me this. She said, Eric, this car feels so unsafe. It rattles. It's, it's, it's a little dinky car. Like, why do you keep driving this? You should sell it, get a new car because it just feels so unsafe. And I told her, hey, Jess, hey, look, this car got one of the highest safety ratings. Don't worry about it. Um, year after year, she would continuously warn me that this was a super unsafe car, but I felt completely safe. Why? Because they gave it a, a five-star rating. Um, but um, before, once uh, my wife got pregnant with our first son, uh, finally I decided, okay, I'll go ahead and sell the car. I'll go buy a new car. And that's when we brought, bought our Subaru Forester. Now, after I sold that car, my wife did a little bit of research and what she found out was that the Nissan Versa, the 2007 Nissan Versa, was actually uh, considered a death trap. Um, although it did get really high safety ratings, what they came to find is that uh, the Nissan Versa actually had the highest death rates uh, in, its, in its class. Um, so many people actually died because this car was so ridiculously unsafe. And all this to say again, you can feel secure and not be secure at all. You can feel secure and not be secure at all. Uh, you know, in, uh, in an Atlantic, uh, they, they published an article back in 2014. It was entitled, The TSA is in the business of security theater, not security. And this article is really fascinating. It's an expose on the TSA and how the TSA doesn't actually prevent any real terrorist attacks. In fact, Homeland Security tested the TSA and found that they failed in almost every scenario. In this article, they, they refer to an interview given on CNN by a guy named Bruce uh, Schneier. He is a TSA insider. And uh, listen to what he says. He says this, a security is both a feeling and a reality. When people are scared, they need something done that will make them feel safe, even if it truly doesn't make them feel safer. Politicians naturally want to do something in response to crisis, even if that something doesn't make any sense. In other words, the TSA was security theater. It was just a show. Um, now, just to put your minds at ease, what actually does provide real security for flights are actually intelligence officers and increased air marshals that work behind the scenes on planes, uh, but this behind the scenes work isn't seen by so many. And so in order to make people feel more secure, they have this TSA show uh, where they check your, they make, you put your shoe in there, you, you, know, you take off your belt, you take off your jacket, right? you have no liquids. This is all a show to make you feel secure, even though it actually doesn't doesn't actually provide any real security. Another way of putting this false way of approaching security is to say that the person who believes that they are secure, even though they are not in reality, is actually a delusional person. Delusional. 
Huh? Only a delusional person thinks that they are secure when they're truly not secure. Only a delusional person. And we think this is crazy. Um, look, we, we think this idol practice is crazy because they're worshiping these statues. Uh, but this gave people a real sense of security. And we do the same thing. We run to our wealth. We run to our power. We run to our modern day idols. But think about it. In this pandemic, in the greatest, the greatest world powers, China and the US, right? China's second to the US, uh, we could not overcome this virus. The richest man on the planet, Bill Gates, could not stop this virus. Although Bill Gates is doing a tremendous effort in building factories uh, for future vaccines, and he's doing an honorable job, he's donating billions to fight against this virus, all the money and power in the world cannot provide security from this virus. And yet, look, think about it even this way, right? Even if we do overcome this threat, and we will, all the money and power in the world cannot get you to escape death. They can't. No idol in this world can help you to escape death. Even this earth, think about this earth. In time, the, the sun will give out. The sun is not some infinite ball of energy. In a billion years or so, the sun will extinguish. The earth will go cold and everything we know as humanity will cease to exist. And so what I'm saying is all the power and wealth give you a false sense of security. You think you're secure, but in reality, danger and death still await you. And I know that's very a somber tone to end this point, but it's true. There's nothing in this world that can provide you true security. So this moves us into our second point, a false sense of danger. Oh, here's a second fallacy in approaching security. And it's actually the reverse of what I've been talking about, right? Uh, it's actually the reverse of what we just talked about. It's a false sense of danger. Uh, did you know that you can actually be secure and not feel secure at all? Right, and this is another false way of approaching security. Did you know you can actually be secure and yet not feel secure at all? You know, many Americans are actually afraid of flying. Uh, they feel unsafe of flying, and yet Americans actually have a one in 114 chance of dying in a car crash, okay? A one in 114 chance of dying in a car crash. This is according to a National Safety Council, okay? The odds of dying in air and space transport incidents, including private jets, including private flights or air taxis, are one in 9,821. One in 9,821, and yet we don't feel secure flying on planes. We don't, even though it's safer than actually driving a car. Uh, you know, Barry Glassner, he's the author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. And um, the safest, he says, uh, we live in the safest time in history. We live in the safest time in history as far as we know. But people are more fearful. And this is why he goes on to conclude that we buy more home security, even though we live in one of the safest times, even though crime rates are down, we boost home security. Why? Because even though we are safe, we actually don't feel safe. And Christian, do you realize that you have real security and yet you're still afraid? Look at what the psalmist says at the ending of verse one. Oh God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He's saying, protect me, God, because you are the only true protection I have. And here you have real security. You have Jesus. In fact, later on in the psalm, he says this, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And what he's saying is this, look, the Lord is at my right hand, meaning this, the Lord is here to serve me. 
You see, oftentimes we think the Old Testament God and Jesus in the New Testament are very different, and yet Jesus is a servant in the New Testament, and what the Old Testament is telling us is that God is a servant as well. And David is saying, God sits at his right hand as a servant, and he protects him. He's serving me, and he, he stares at this truth, he says. He sets this truth before himself. He stares at this truth, and yet as Christians, instead of realizing this truth, that we have real security in Christ, we make our problems and our troubles and our threats the only things we stare at. We make our problems the only thing we see instead of seeing Jesus. This is why, right, even though flying is super safe, you get afraid when you hear about a plane crash. Why? Because the threat becomes so much more big and magnified than the truth itself. Right, even though you know the truth is one in 9,821 will actually die of a plane crash, you see the threat much bigger than the truth. Uh, uh, think about it like this, right? When you hear somebody getting mugged or robbed or whatever it is, all of a sudden you begin tightening security at home, even though you're still statistically very safe. Why? Because the threat becomes much bigger than the actual truth. When the threat becomes bigger than the truth, this is when you feel afraid, even though you have nothing to be afraid of. You know, I remember uh, at UW, when I was uh, there, I took a class called a murder. It was a sociology class which studied murder all throughout. And um, I remember the first day of lecture, I still remember this because it was such a fascinating class. Uh, the lecturer came up, he was a sociology professor, and he said, we're gonna go through a number of murder cases, and these murder cases will actually make you feel like danger is all around you. And he says, but I want to remind you of the truth, that your chance of being randomly murdered by a stranger like a Ted Bundy or like a Charles Manson are one in 150,000. One in 150,000. He said, you shouldn't be afraid of strangers. In fact, you, if anything, you should be more afraid of people that you know because 15% of murders are done by strangers, he said. But 85% of murders are actually committed by somebody you know. But even then, the chances of you are being murdered are very, very, very low. And he had to remind us of this truth. Why? Because as we studied murder case after murder case, the threat of being murdered would become much bigger than the actual statistical truth. And so all this to say, we make our threats bigger than who Jesus really is. And so even though we are secure in reality, we don't feel secure. And this is another false way of approaching security. And so this leads us finally to our last and final point, true security. So how do we find security? How do we find security, okay? Look with me at verse one once again. The psalmist says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Look at verse two now. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David looks to the Lord for security, but notice what he's asking God, okay? He's not asking God, hey God, can you protect all of my wealth? Can you protect my life? Can you protect my health? Can you protect my job? He doesn't think, in other words, let me put it like this. David doesn't think God is a dispenser of security. That's not why he's praying to God. He's not saying God is, is a dispenser of security uh, and that all David has to do is say the right words, pray the right prayers, do the right things, be moralistic, and, and then God will give him exactly what he says. He says this, no, he says, I have no good apart from you. And this phrase for I have no good apart from you is actually better translated above you, beside you, beyond you, nothing good. No good other than you. You are the 
sum, the apex and the fullness of good. And, and then this good is all that I seek. You see, David is not secure because he believes God is going to protect all of his stuff, all of his money, all of his power, his job, even his health. No, he feels secure because God protects the one thing that matters to King David, and that is the Lord himself. The Lord is, is promising him that he will never leave David. He will never forsake David. And so in him, he finds security. The Lord himself is security. The Lord is not a dispenser of security. Jesus himself is our security. He's not merely a giver of security. He is security in himself. Look, this is found all throughout the psalm. Look at verses uh, 5 and 6, for example. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, this word for portion there is referring to wealth, uh, to inheritance. In other words, he's saying, look, God, you're my wealth. This cup is referring to pleasure and satisfaction. He's saying, look, God, you're not only my wealth, but you're my pleasure and you're my satisfaction. In other words, uh, he's able to say this, look, even though, uh, uh, even though other people can inherit wealth, even though other people inherit uh, pleasure and satisfaction from having all these nice things, he's saying, I find all of those things in you. You are my wealth. You are my satisfaction. Look, the reason why Jesus came and died on the cross is not to protect your wealth, not to protect your power, not to protect, uh, you know, all these things that you might have. He came so he could secure your soul. He came so he could secure your relationship with him. That's why he came. Look at verse 11. King David goes on to say, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even beyond death, David says, he will know the fullness of joy and pleasures forever because only because God will be at his right hand. Only because David will be in God's presence forever and ever. What David is saying here is remarkable. David isn't saying to us, he isn't saying God is simply a better way to get what you need for your money, sex, power. He's saying, no, God himself is your security. God himself is your pleasure. God himself is your inheritance, your joy. Get him and he will be enough. Look, when you understand that your relationship with God is secure, it will secure all of your life. Look, think about it like this, okay? A very, very silly, silly illustration. Very, very silly example. But think about it like this. Like this. I don't, you know, I, I'll eat carrots and I'll eat broccolis. I'll eat my vegetables. But I don't necessarily love vegetables, okay? I'll eat them because they're good for my health. But I don't necessarily love vegetables, okay? What I do love is I love a chocolate cake. Okay, I love chocolate cake. Um, and so now imagine this, right? Imagine I have broccolis and carrots out here in front of me. And yet I have my chocolate cake secured in a lockbox that's indestructible and no one can get past the security system, okay? And so a robber comes, right? He takes my carrots, he takes my broccolis, but he can't take my chocolate cake. Can't take it uh, because it's impenetrable, it's secure. Nothing can break through it, nothing at all. And so even though he takes my carrots, even though he takes my broccolis, it's okay. It's okay, why? Because the thing that I value most is secure. The thing that I love the most is secure. And this is what King David is saying. Look, the thing that I love most in this world is absolutely secure. Nothing can take away the thing that you love most. 
Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. He says, yes, I'm sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not death, life, angels or ruling spirits. He says, nothing in this world can take you away from the love of God. Nothing in the future, no powers, nothing above us, nothing below us, nothing in the whole created world will ever be able to take away the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, this is why in the early church, when a devastating plague broke out, everyone was running away from the cities. Everyone was looking for their own lives. Everyone was looking to secure themselves. And but you know what the Christians did? Christians stayed. They ministered to the sick. They got sick. They died. Why? Because they knew they were secure. Nothing could take Jesus away from them. You could take their money. You could take their positions. You could take their health, even their life. But even in death, they could not be separated from the love of Christ. And and this is why they had security. This is why David had security. And this is why we can have security. Because nothing can take Jesus away from us. Nothing. Look, if you look at verses 9 and 10, these verses are actually used in the very first sermon that was preached by the Apostle Peter. It says this, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. And in the first Christian sermon ever preached in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached on this passage, on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and how Jesus' death and resurrection secures your soul that Jesus will not allow your soul to go to shale, that he will not allow your soul to be separated from the love of God, that it is Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross that secures your relationship and your love uh, and, and, and God's love for you forevermore and eternal security. Look, do you want to find security? It actually begins by making Jesus your everything. If Jesus is your love, if Jesus is your everything, then the psalmist is saying you can have security because nothing in this world, no powers, no principalities, no darkness, not even death itself can take away the love of God from you. But if you love money, if you love power, if you love your job and your comforts, those things will never be secure. Those things will never be secure. Those things can always be taken away from you. But your relationship with Jesus Christ will always, always be secure. But now here's a quick objection. You know, Pastor Eric, I hear you, but, but you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't love Jesus as much as I should. Like, like I get what you're saying. I should, I should love Jesus and he should be my security, my relationship with him, but I just don't feel the love that I should feel for Jesus. And my response to you is this. How do you, how do you love something that you don't love is in, is in essence what we're trying to ask here. And my response is this. Taste him and see how good he is. Taste him and see how good he is. And I'm telling you, if you taste Jesus, you taste him and you see how good he truly is, I'm telling you, you will, you will never love anything else in this world but Jesus and him alone. If you make Jesus your vision, if you make Jesus your everything, and you taste and see how good he is, you will not want anything else in this world. You know, my son uh, is a very picky eater and he won't try anything new. He loves the things that he knows and he'll eat only those things. Um, but there are a few occasions where I want to introduce him to something new. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to get him. I'll tell him, Josiah, can you try to eat this for daddy? And he'll say, no, no, no. It's gross. It's disgusting. And he'll kind of shake his head and do all that stuff. And um, 
this one particular time I remember I had made this interesting dish. I, I basically uh, took a, a, a bowl of rice, a hot steaming bowl of rice. I put tuna, mayo, uh, some sesame seed oil, and some um, nori, and I put it all together. I mixed it all in this bowl, and it actually came out to be quite tasty. It was sort of like a, this tuna rice. Uh, and so I, I tasted it myself, it was pretty good. And so I, I told Josiah, hey, can you try this and eat this? Uh, it's really good. Um, but the thing you have to understand is this bowl of tuna rice looked very nasty. Uh, it just didn't look very appealing. And so when I first showed it to him, he was like, ah, he was like, no. He kept shaking his head, like held him down. And I eat it and so for literally like 30 minutes, I tried to feed it to him. And so finally I, I held him down and I shoved this spoon of tuna in his mouth. And, um, and I said, just try it, Josiah, you'll like it, I promise you, you'll like it. And so I put it in his mouth, uh, he starts shaking, and as soon as I let go of the spoon, I put it in his mouth, he just spits all of it out. And I was like discouraged, but then sooner or later, he just, there's, there's little remnant pieces of this tuna and this rice that's in his mouth, and so he starts to taste it. He starts to eat it, and, and soon enough, he turns to me and he says, he's like, can I have more? And so then I'm, I'm delighted, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, so I give him the tuna rice. He starts eating it. Soon enough, he finishes the entire bowl. He finishes the entire bowl. See, and, and the reason why I'm telling this story is, 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 is very obvious is that if you taste something and it tastes good, you want more and more of it. And you see, the reason why you don't love Christ is because you haven't tasted his goodness. Maybe it's been a long time since you savored our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Especially for those of you who are older folks, you may have had a passion for Jesus when you were younger, but now owning a home, working a job, taking care of your kids has smashed and obliterated your passion for Jesus. It's only this day-to-day -day grind. And now that you're home with your kids, this passion for Jesus is the last thing that's on your mind. For, for you, I, I, I plead with you and I ask you once again, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see by praying. Taste and see by reading your word. Taste and see by worshiping. Taste and see by meditating upon the gospel truth that you are a sinner, uh, indeed uh, deserving the wrath of God, but because of his grace, because of his death upon a cross, you were able to taste his mercy and his forgiveness. And once you taste and see how good he is, friends, you will, you will love him and you will make him your everything. You know, there's a, there's a story in Luke chapter 7 of this woman who comes into this Pharisee's house. Jesus is eating at this Pharisee's house. She rudely interrupts this meal. She comes in with this ointment, this oil, this, 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 this bottle of ointment, and she just breaks this alabaster flask all over Jesus' feet. She wets his uh, feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair, and she's crying tears. And then Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees were judging him, tells uh, Simon Peter this parable. He tells him this story about how uh, the, this, there's a money lender and he had two debtors. One owed him basically like $300 million and the other one owed him only $3 million. And he said, look, this money lender cancels both debts and he says, which one do you think loved the money lender more? And Simon Peter's like, it's obvious, the one who owed him $300 million. And Jesus basically says to the Pharisees, look, when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but this woman has been washing my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss from the time that I came in, but she has not ceased to kiss, kissing my feet feet. Her sins are many and she's been forgiven many and thus she loves much. The woman tasted the goodness of Christ. The woman tasted the forgiveness, tasted the grace, tasted the mercy of Jesus Christ and she gave everything she was to Jesus. And friends, that's what I'm encouraging you to do is to taste and to see how good the Lord is. I want to end off with that verse from our psalm in Psalm chapter uh, 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 
in chapter 16, uh, in Psalm chapter 16, uh, he says this at, at the very end. He says, I have, in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The Lord is always in your sights. And I encourage you to place the Lord in your sights, to look at him, to behold him, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to set the Lord always before you, to make him your vision, to make him your sight, and to find your peace and security in him. Amen. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Lord, Father, we thank you, God, for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we ask, God, that during this time of peace, God, that as we reflect upon our security, may we not find our security in idolatry, in our power, in our money, but Lord, may we find our security in you. May we find our security in Jesus Christ. May we come to love him more. May we come to lay down our lives and everything for Jesus and him alone, because he is worth it all. Lord, he is the pearl. God, he is the treasure. And God, we will leave everything to acquire him. Holy Spirit, make this truth alive in our hearts today. Lord, may we seek you and only you. Lord, we pray this on your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's end this time in a, in a benediction. And if you're unfamiliar with what a benediction is, it just means a good word. We want to end this time with a good, good word, a, a word of hope. And my hope and my word to you today is to find your everything in Jesus. Not to find your everything in your money, in your success, in your power, in your job security, but to find your security in Jesus and in Him alone. And so hear now the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and give you grace. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen.